Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us on Back to the Bible Canada. Today is our final message from Dr. Neufeld's Thanksgiving series, and we'll finish examining Psalm 37 from verses 10 through 40 and discover one of God's great promises to us. So let's go back to the Bible with a message entitled, God Protects Me. Until Christ comes again, wickedness will be a part of the human story. Whether it is the millions of misplaced refugees fleeing Syria, or crime in the streets, or the abuse of children or the elderly, wickedness pervades the human race. It is simply a fact that we are all unsafe, and we try to do our best to remain safe. So we lock our doors and we try to stay home after certain hours of the night. We warn our children not to talk to strangers. You know, recently while driving home from work, I noticed a sign stretched across the freeway. Amber Alert, it said. And then it described a two-year-old girl. You know, I said a prayer as I drove home, but soon after it became clear that the little girl was found dead and a 22-year-old man was in custody with the RCMP. I couldn't even begin to imagine the grief of the family and the stunned disbelief of the community. But it does remind me that as we live in a country which God has blessed with a bounty so that after the harvest we are again comforted by the news that our barns and silos overrun, that there will be no food shortage this winter, it is good to stop and give thanks. But how can a world of such abundance and beauty be attended by such moral wickedness? How is it possible that there are some who will go to bed hungry tonight when the world we live in is perfectly capable of feeding every single stomach? See, the promise from Scripture is that these things will not remain forever. Psalm 37, verses 10 to 11 says, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Most of us know that Jesus quoted this passage of Scripture when in Matthew 5, verse 5, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But this is a prophecy that one day, powerful, wicked people who oppress others will vanish. And the meek, the powerless, those who have no other Savior but their God, will inherit the earth. Look back at an earlier part of this psalm, way back to verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You can see that this wicked man both prospers and that he carries out evil deeds. But for all of us who are used to saying what goes around comes around, well, that is sometimes true in this life, but it's not always true. In verse 16, which we will read later, it speaks of the abundance of the wicked. In verse 21, it speaks of a wicked man who borrows but does not pay back, leaving his lenders with a devastating loss. The wicked man, as he is described in this psalm, has become wealthy by cheating and robbing others, by breaking laws and bending rules, and caring more about getting his way than the lives of those who have been destroyed. In Psalm 73, Asaph describes the wicked man who prospers in the way. I'm reading Psalm 73, 4 to 9. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. What an amazing description. But there is more. 
According to David in our psalm, in verse 12 and verse 14 and 32, they stand poised to persecute others, and they even destroy the righteous. The wicked thinks that nothing can stop him, and his track record makes him think he's secure. What follows next in this psalm are two paragraphs in which we are promised that this state of events is one day going to be reversed. Notice verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. I think the wicked plot against the righteous because the righteous is less likely to suspect him. That's because the wicked think wicked thoughts and suspect others of being as wicked as they themselves are and are constantly wary. But not so with the righteous. And so, from the eyes of the wicked, the righteous are easy prey. But God knows there is a day of judgment coming, and he knows it because he is arranging it. Now the second paragraph in verses 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. David may have been thinking of his own experience here. Absalom's rebellion cost him his own life. And sometimes raiders and marauders are met with stout resistance and are killed by those they intended to plunder. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the wicked seem to prosper for a very long time. But David is convinced their weapons of war will in the end be used against them. Then after David has examined the end of the wicked, he comes to a conclusion, and we should come to the same one. Verses 16 to 20, he says, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the day of famine they have an abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. You know, at first glance, this passage might seem to promise more things than real life seems to deliver. Is it really true that, according to verse 19, that the righteous will have an abundance in times of famine? It is right to ask this because our experience of the world tells us this is actually not always the case. You know, I also say this because of the history of my own family. My parents were both born in the former Soviet Union, and if you know anything about Stalin's treatment of the Ukraine in the 1930s to the 1940s, you will know that Stalin enacted a policy of deliberately starving out the Ukraine. In spite of rich farmland and abundant harvests, he forbade any farmer from even gathering a stock of wheat at the pain of death. My father's older brother starved to death in those days, and until my father's own death as an old man, he occasionally struggled with survivor's guilt, wondering if he had eaten more than his share. You know, I say this because my extended family were a family of believers from whom everything was taken by cruel and wicked men who cared not one thing about their lives and their deaths. I want to share with you with with utter certainty that in the days of abundance, they most certainly did not have an abundance. You see, taken straight up, this text does not seem to be true in all cases. Yet it is often true that God blesses the righteous, but it seems often also true that the unrighteous seem blessed. Looking at the world around me does not assure me that the level of income or resources people have available to them is any indicator of their moral condition. Furthermore, sometimes the situation is exactly reversed. 
The unrighteous have become wealthy and powerful, and those who love God suffer under their hand. That's surely the case today in lands around the world where believers are being persecuted. So how are we to understand these verses that we've just read? I think the answer is found in the beginning of verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. Now go ahead to verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. Then in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Now to verse 37, mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, and the future must be a part of the forever statements. I know that the standard wisdom around the Old Testament is that it was not until the time of the intertestamental period and then on into the New Testament that there is a clear doctrine of life after death. To the most part, at least so we're told, the Old Testament saints knew only about death and Sheol, which was the land of the dead, sometimes depicted as the land of shadows, in which they are to the most part unaware of what happens next. See, often Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6 is cited as a reference for this. It says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. But texts like this are not intended to teach us what Solomon thought about life after death. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is written from a perspective, and that perspective is life lived under the sun. That is, life lived on the earth without the perspective of God's revelation and the life to come. The book is supposed to teach us that if God were not there, all would be meaninglessness and vanity. All the life we live and and the things we accomplish are swallowed up in death and are no more. If all we have is this life, then all we do is a kind of a chasing after the wind, a meaningless quest that always ends up in misery. And when we come back, we will see that the perspective of eternity is indeed the only perspective that gives hope and a sense of the protection of our God. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? Well, these are questions that live in the minds of many young adult Christians in our culture. Well, Dr. John Newfeld says, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they are asking about gender identity. Well, we're responding to that need by hosting In Doubt's first In Doubt Live event about sexual identity. In Doubt Live will include speakers Dr. John Newfeld, leader of Ethos Ministries, Pastor Dave Johnson, In Doubt's own ministry leader, Isaac Dagno, and Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada. In the evening, we'll also include an open forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. If you're a young adult or part of a young adult Christian group, join us for In Doubt Live Sexual Identity happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clover Theatre in Surrey, British Columbia. In Doubt Live is free admission, and you can discover all the details at live.indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's return to our program with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's get back to the word forever and whether the Old Testament presents us with any sense of eternal hope. 
in Psalm 73 when Asaph said he had almost lost his faith because he was considering the prosperity and strength of the wicked, he claims that he only regained his faith when in his words, and I'm reading from Psalm 73, verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And he does not mean their earthly end because, as he has already observed, in some cases, the wicked die in peace at an old age. Their end must mean for Asaph their eternal end. Well, that's not only true for Asaph. I've often contemplated words that get repeated on several occasions in the book of Genesis, also found in Numbers and then in Deuteronomy. They are the words gathered to his people. For instance, in Genesis 25, verse 8, we read, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, I know that it's sometimes argued that this phrase has something to do with the burial arrangements in which a family tomb held all the members of a family who had died. And since Abraham had bought a family tomb and and Sarah was buried there, this must refer to their burial arrangements. Let me share with you why I think that's not what's meant by these words. After we're told that Abraham was gathered to his people, that is, the very next phrase we're told in verse 9, that he was buried. Now, clearly, being gathered to his people happened before the burial of his body. Furthermore, in the same phrase, and it's used in Joshua 2 verse 10, speaking about the generation that lived with Moses, it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Clearly, they were not all buried in the same tomb. Ah, But maybe it just means that they were brought to the same place of death as their fathers were. Well, that's not how Jesus understood it. In Matthew 8.11, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's where the people of God gather. But of course, that's exactly in line with how the ancient Old Testament text speaks. Job, in Job 19, verse 26, says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or in Psalm 23, verse 6, David says, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And by the way, he didn't mean I'm going to enter into the tabernacle. He uses the word forever. Daniel, in Daniel 12, verse 2, writes, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So while it is true that there is not in the Old Testament the kind of clarity as to what happens on the other side that there is in the New Testament, still, the Old Testament has a clear anticipation of life after death, an anticipation that all the righteous will gather in a place of joy in the house of God, and all the unrighteous will suffer everlasting contempt. And unless one has that understanding, then all the Psalms and Proverbs, and especially this Psalm 37, that the wicked will perish and the righteous will have an abundance in the time of famine, then it is well within the mark to say that if the famine leads to the riverside of death, then the wicked will indeed be at a great want and need on the other side, but the righteous will have an abundance in the land to come. And since we don't have time to go into every verse in this wonderful psalm, let's just jump ahead to verses 27 to 29, where David now gives counsel based upon this knowledge. He says, turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. 
Now, here we have as close as we can get in the Old Testament to the hope of the new heavens and the new earth and the surety of the resurrection of the body. The land that the wicked now seem to dominate and control, that very land will be inherited by the righteous and they will live there forever. You know, it's for this reason that I tend to personalize passages like this. You know, I live on Canada's West Coast, and even though I've lived away from this place for a number of years, I've come back to the place of my birth. I love the mountains and the forest, and I love the lakes, and I absolutely exult in the ocean, you know, the scene just off the coast. In my mind, I live in a place of unmatched beauty. I know that in the present hour, this land is governed by a lawful government that is set up by God. I am glad that in this hour that I'm given freedom to practice and to preach the faith. I'm glad that I can even win people to faith in Christ without persecution. But in the present hour, I feel like a pilgrim and a stranger here. See, I weep over abortions in this land. I weep over the fact that the knowledge of God is forgotten. I weep over the fact that sometimes what's wrong and sinful is commended as a virtue. But I do know this. I will inherit this land and will put my foot on it forever. This land, finally and ultimately, belongs to the servants of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you're from Syria and you are persecuted for righteousness' sake and the wicked drive you from the land, that land will belong to the servants of the king. It is for that reason that David tells us to turn away from evil and to do good. Evil men and women may flourish for a short time, and for a brief moment, it may seem like evil is very rewarding indeed, but it is not. Although righteous people sometimes suffer, they will live in eternity. And with that, I am skipping ahead again in the psalm to verses 35 to 37. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he is no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. See, the great temptation for all of us is that we trade in today for tomorrow. David said that the sudden disappearance of an opposing personality astonishes us so much so that we actually look for him. But when that happens, it's a reminder that the things that seem so imposing and impossibly evil are but for a moment. And when we read through this psalm, we are overwhelmed with the promise God makes to two kinds of people. To the wicked, God says, you're here but for a short period of time, and justice is coming. Today is so quickly behind us. I find it interesting how many people fear time. Every birthday is a threat, every wrinkle, every gray hair, every ache and pain, every doctor is reported. It reminds them how relentlessly the day is coming when they will not be here. They fear time. And to be truthful, they should fear time, because the day of justice really is coming. But to the righteous, God says three things. The first is found in verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When I spoke of that verse yesterday, I, I put some qualifications around it. But in truth, in the light of eternity, there are none. It means what it says straight up. It is full and rich and unqualified offer in all things. The promise is that your reward is greater than you can imagine. And then the second promise found in verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. See, the second promise tells us that all my faithfulness to God will never be forgotten. 
A dear friend and mentor, the late pastor Carlin Weinhauer, used to say, God knows. You know, if I heard him say that once, I heard him say it a hundred times. He said it when unrighteousness seemed to win. He said it when he was slandered. He said it when something that he or others had done went unnoticed. He kept saying it over and over again because in the end, he understood it and he believed it. David believed it too. God will in the end let my righteousness shine forth. And a third promise in verse 9. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. And with that, we're ready to hear David's final words. Verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. See, we've been talking about reasons to be thankful. God's bountiful provision is always a great theme at Thanksgiving. But we can say, I am thankful that the great God of heaven knows my name and He protects me and will favor me for all of eternity. John, thanks for this great series and this Thanksgiving week. I'd like to ask you though, personally, what are some of the things that you're most grateful for today? Such a good question, Ben. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, because I was raised in the kind of family I was raised in which, you know, the stories of persecution and death and all of those things, uh, torture, uh, were recounted. And I remember my father telling me on a regular basis that we should be thankful that we have food on our table. I think that's kind of stayed with me. So the idea that there is an abundance and that we live in a, a land of plenty and we are also uh, protected, our, our human rights are protected in this land, even though I recognize that I wish there was a greater gospel proclamation, which surely I think anyone who loves Christ wants. But I am overwhelmed with gratefulness that God has allowed us to live in the land that we live in and experience the kind of abundance that we have. We really do need to thank God for what we have, and I think we need to pray for our country regularly. In this psalm, we've looked at some of the wonderful promises of God to all believers. When we're faced with the evil of this world, we can face it with a perspective that looks forward to eternity, where we can have confidence that everything will be set right by God. Indeed, our Savior will never forsake those who trust in Him. I hope you've been encouraged by today's message, and may it give us even more reason to thank God for His everlasting protection. Well, that concludes Dr. Neufeld's final message on this special one-week Thanksgiving series called He Knows My Name. And don't forget, this and every Bible teaching series is available on CD or by signing up for the podcast, audio mail, or downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't miss next week on the program as we feature another installment of the Highlight Reel featuring some of Dr. Newfeld's most insightful messages of 2015. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The third annual 2017 Laugh Again Christmas Tour is coming to a community near you. Join author and humorist Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, award-winning guitarist Jay Calder, and partnering ministries Back to the Bible Canada and Compassion Canada for an evening of laughter, music, and insight into the true meaning of the Christmas season. The Laugh Again Christmas Tour will be coming to British Columbia on Saturday, November 26th to Vancouver. This is a unique Christmas event for the whole family, for friends and neighbors, and it's an event that you won't want to miss. 
So more information can be found at laughagame.ca and tickets can be purchased at the host church in advance or online at laughagame.ca. Don't pass up this opportunity to begin the Christmas season with friends. Phil, Jay, and the entire team look forward to celebrating the season with you.